Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Today is my 25th episode of Feast Your Ears. Thank you for listening. And today I have on the phone with me Lori Lieberman, who is uh, author of a blog called Drop It and Eat, and author of two books called Food to Eat and Drop the Diet, about how we eat and uh, how the foods that we eat relate to us and how we relate to them. Uh, Lori's been a nutrition consultant for more than 25 years in the Boston area and has experience with eating disorders, diabetes management, pediatric and prenatal nutrition, among many other things. Thanks, Lori, for joining me by phone. My pleasure. So I like to have, you know, I, I like to give an intro of my guests, but I find that people are usually better at describing themselves and introducing themselves than I am, uh, especially in cases okay. like this. So, you know, looking at your blog, um, you have a, your, your bio is, in, is very impressive. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, how do you describe yourself when you meet someone and they say, oh, Lori, what do you do? How do you, what do you say? Huh. Well, I, I guess it depends on who I'm with in terms of what I'd say. Because I'm in a, if I'm at a uh, cocktail party and I mention I'm a nutritionist, then I have to be careful because they'll be <laughs> acting really strange around me. Right. <laughs> but um, in, in the professional arena, what I would say is that I take a very behavioral approach to help people change their relationship with food. Um, and that goes across all kinds of conditions, whether someone's struggling with diabetes management or weight management or an eating disorder. So that really permeates everything I do. Yeah, I can imagine that if you tell people that you, uh, that you work uh, as a nutrition consultant at a dinner party, that they're going to be watching everything you eat and feel like you're watching everything they eat. Yeah, it's often quite a surprise to people how much I really like food and good food and pastries and butter and good wine. So, um, yeah, they're often in for in for a surprise, I have to say. Yeah. Um, how did you first become interested in, in the line of study, um, in working with people about nutrition and eating disorders and diabetes management? Um, well, a quick answer in terms of my interest in nutrition, I'd say it was sparked from an intro nutrition class I took when I was at Brown my freshman year. It was the only class they offered uh, in nutrition, and it really wowed me. I really decided from that point, really at that point, to pursue a career in nutrition. Um, I'd say in terms of the eating disorder part, um, I had struggled with my own eating disorder when I was in college, really early stages of anorexia, and then binge eating disorder for quite some time, which um, I recovered from. So I'd say that there was always an interest in that area, the diabetes management just evolved from seeing patients 
you know, with various conditions, and I, I did additional training to have an expertise in diabetes management. Mm-hmm. I think the real love of eating disorder treatment only evolved seeing a wealth of patients with eating disorders, and largely because I don't think there's anything as rewarding as seeing a patient who's really struggling. And this is, you know, eating disorders are life-threatening conditions. Sure. But to see someone with eating with an eating disorder and to feel like, you know, you helped save their life and to be told many a time that I saved a child's life or, you know, the individual's life or got them on track, I, there's really nothing that's as rewarding as that. So. Yeah, I, I think that... Uh you know, it, it is important to recognize, especially in the in the food space, right? I mean, the, this radio show, this radio station, my business, we're all sort of operating in the food space and often coming mm-hmm. from a point of view of celebrating food. And I think it's, mm. and, and I feel like there's a lot of talk, certainly for us, you know, we throw lots of events, we throw lots of fundraisers related to people who don't have enough food. And I feel like there's a lot of talk yeah. about that, but I think it's important to, you know, to to think about and, and recognize that, that that's not the only sort of issue around food that people have and that there, you know, there are people who have, have trouble, you know, with how they eat or don't eat and having to do with body image and, and that sort of stuff. Um, I am, you know, yeah. which, which then led to the, your book, um, Food to Eat, which you wrote with a co-author. So you want me to? Do you want me to respond to that a little bit? Yeah, can you so can I you respond? You, yeah, so, so a few things. Um, yes, I think it's unfortunate that eating disorders haven't gotten as much attention uh, until more recently um, as they should, and especially with this kind of national anti-obesity movement, I don't think it's helped our cause at, at all. And I think in many ways it's set, set us back in terms of where our focus should be uh, in terms of educating kids and adults and the kind of messages out there. And I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that in a little bit. Um, you know, as, as for the book, uh, Food to Eat, Food to Eat came about basically the, um, the initiative of Kate, my co-author, who started to follow my blog, uh, drop, I'm sorry, yeah, drop it and eat. I'm getting some feedback on my side. I don't know if you can hear it there. Um, sounds okay. You, you sounds okay? okay to me in the studio. Can you still hear me okay? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm okay there. Okay. Um, that's settled down. So um, I started writing a blog about, uh, well, in 2010, actually. And one of my blog followers uh, was a woman named Kate, who was from Melbourne, Australia. She's a woman in, at the time, a woman in her, I think, late 30s and a mother of three daughters. And so she started to read, and as people do, leave comments and started to engage with me. And uh, after some time, she clearly started to trust what I had to say and, you know, would, would pose questions to me. And we developed a nice relationship. And at some point, she said she was looking for a book to kind of help support her recovery, which she had only just started, and was wondering, having not seen anything out there, was wondering about the possibility of jointly um, working on something, a recovery book of sorts, a recovery cookbook for people with eating disorders. So I said to her, I thought it was a great idea, but she and I had a very different vision for what this recovery, quote-unquote, cookbook would be. Hmm. Um, you know, her idea was um, very disordered recipes because that was still where she was at. So, for hmm. instance, 
you know, she was suggesting things like miso soup and uh, salads. And uh, I said to her, well, I like the concept. I don't support the content. So if we're going to do this, it really has to be a recovery book. It needs to have desserts and it has to have real food and it has to have things that I would cook myself. It has to have recipes I really enjoy. Sure. Um, but but um, written in a way that can still help people that are afraid to eat and afraid to eat enough and have a lot of food rules and rigidity about what's quote-unquote safe to eat. And so that was the purpose. I mean, for, for one thing, to help readers recognize that we know what we're talking about, that we understand what's going on in their heads so that they can have what I refer to as a transference of trust, that, you know, if we get it, uh, we can kind of help guide them get to a better place. So that's kind of how the book started. That's a, I mean, it's it's an amazing process to me that you were you were in a place where you know you as someone who um, has a practice interacting with clients about these issues in person, right? Using yes. using the tool of the internet to put that out there kind of to everybody, and you know it's sort I, of. I have to- yeah, I mean, I have to say, when I look back on it, I am completely blown away by the fact that we did it, mm-hmm. and also the power of a virtual connection. And actually, subsequently, I've done some um, national speaking at conferences, and in, in fact, with Kate last year, uh, Kate and I um, presented at an international eating disorder conference uh, on a range of topics, but including the power of virtual connection. And... Um, I mean, I think it's just so fascinating. We literally wrote this virtually. You know, she's in, you know across the world, and once a week we would have Skype sessions, and we would debate. That, you know, she would raise her eating disorder concerns, right. and I would counter the eating disorder concerns, and we would talk about everything from, you know, the number of recipes that to accommodate, you know, a more OCD, more OCD concern about the numbers that had to be a certain way mm. or the typeface that had to be a certain way to the quality of the recipes, to how much fat they can have, to how much sugar was okay, and ad- addressing every level of basically to break down all the barriers that anyone living with an eating disorder has to go through every day they have to uh, confront food and eating. Right. And and did you write the entire book that way, virtually, without ever meeting in person? Correct. We wrote the entire book that <laughs> way, and it was a, a very slow process, um, it, complicated by the fact that you know, this is a cookbook, so recipes needed to be tested and you know we needed to make sure there were also issues because you know there are different units used in um australia and in Mm -hmm. europe compared to in the u.s and there were different words we use so we had to deal with things like that but basically um 25 there were 25 recipes 20 of which are mine five are hers and there were different levels of recipes in terms of how much engagement with the food there is um in, in terms of times and things of the sort so basically, we we negotiated all of this, and um, then she actually had to cook the recipes, and she had to taste all the recipes, and she was, you know, pretty entrenched in her eating disorder as she was starting this process, and so she had to get herself out of her own way in order to write the book. Support. 
right? And yeah. so she had a she had to make the recipes, and then furthermore, the the recipes were photographed by her husband, who um, is an amateur photographer and did a phenomenal job with these with the images. And if you got to look online, yeah. these are all his images. That's great. And so she had to taste it. You know, she had to taste. She had to make it. She had to deal with the food, like all of the readers of these books will need to deal with. Yep. Um, and she had to give her reaction to it, and the reactions weren't always so positive, and we put that out there, too. So if there was something that made her very uneasy, she'd put it out there in her reaction, and I would counter it, and we'd have a little back and forth. And so it was a very real uh, experience in recovery, because she was actively going through it at the time. We finally met after the book had been completely written, but not yet published, uh, we met in, um, at an, an international eating disorder conference that was being held in Austin, Texas. Hmm. And it was, it was a really fabulous experience. It was really, really wonderful. And as I mentioned, we, you know, we got together again this past year. Uh, there was, the conference was held in Boston, and we spoke at the conference, and she stayed with me for a week, which was fabulous. Hmm. That's, that's, that's amazing. And how has, how has her recovery been? You know, I think like recovery, um, recovery has ups and downs. Yeah. Um, I think she's in a much better place. She had a, you know, again, I mentioned she started to follow the blog when she was in her late 30s, but yep. she had an eating disorder since her teens mm. that for decades had never been um, addressed. Right. So I think she's come a really long way. And like everybody has ups and downs with things like, you know, the eating disorder and, and you know, things like depression and anxiety, which are also really, really common common situations um, first with eating disorders. Yeah. And then your subsequent book is called Drop the Diet. Yeah, so essentially Drop the Diet is the same book uh-huh. with a few things modified. So, you know, the covers are, if you look at them, are look almost the same. And basically what happened is we started um, Food to Eat um, designed for people more with restrictive eating disorders, although the... It could have applied to anyone, and then we we realized that when we go and do speaking, when I would go and do speaking engagements, you know, no one was rushing up to buy a book that had, um, you know, basically saying I have uh, an eating disorder on the on the cover, and so we decided to broaden the audience a little bit and modified it to really um, change it to be overcoming your food rules. And in reality, it was very easy to keep much of the book exactly the same because even people dealing with binge eating disorder or compulsive overeating or bulimia have an element of restrictive eating and rigidity and food rules and nutrition misinformation as a core component. And so it was very easy to modify it. You know, modifying the language and having a, a couple of extra insert pages that address their specific needs to help them feel more in control. Sure, and, and the recipes were already tested, right? So you knew that the recipes worked and that they were delicious. Oh, yeah, and that's all exactly the same. That's all exactly the same. And it makes sense. I mean, I, it, it is a, you know, I have to imagine um, that it is a hard thing to start out from a point of, of, you know, suddenly picking it up and saying, oh, well, maybe I do have an eating disorder. That That, that yeah, is something absolutely. that, you know, and, and yeah. of course, in a public space doing that. I mean, it's one thing to order it online, but if you're seeing it in a public space and you're holding it and you're picking it up, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've actually, um, I'd say the biggest sales come from online where people can discreetly buy it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's, that's general. And, and in my office, I have a lot of patients that buy it as mm. well. 
Um, Lori, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. Sure. And then um, when we come back, I want to want to touch on some of the some of what, you know the the things that we spoke about um, or touched on earlier um, about sort of nutrition misinformation and, and related to some pet peeves that you and I spoke about a few weeks ago. Sounds great. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. This is Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. I've been speaking today with Lori Lieberman about eating disorders and her blog, Drop It and Eat, and um, her books, Food to Eat and also Drop the Diet. Um, Lori, when we were uh, corresponding before the show a few weeks ago, uh, one of the questions I asked you is if you had any pet peeves. And that Mm -hmm. sparked a uh, a great, I think, great blog post um, on your blog. Um, If people want to take a look at that, the the blog is dropitandeat.blogspot.com. And what Lori talked about um, in the post is having pet peeves related to the way not only that people react to food and nutrition, but also sort of things in, in society. So I just wanted to, you know, bring some of those up and, and sort of bring them to light um, on the radio. But I think what you, you mentioned earlier, this idea that um, the the recovery or the treatment of eating disorders has been really set back um, by the national sort of um, interest in, um, in, I guess, becoming skinnier. Right. So we have, you know, everywhere we look, there's diet books and there are, um, you know, workout tapes and workout apps and workout groups and and all of these things. And the first thing that you mentioned in the blog really hit home for me, which is that, you know, people assume that weight loss is a good thing sort of across the board and that that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous for someone who has um, an eating disorder or any of these sort of weight issues to operate under the assumption that, you know, if you're skinnier now than the last time you came to the doctor, that that's positive. Absolutely. It's a major problem. I would ask us all to consider that if you see somebody that you haven't seen in a while and your, your thought is, wow, you look great, you've lost weight, that you filter that thought and you ask them how they've been and if they've been well. Right. Because we have no idea about why someone might have lost weight or how they lost weight. So, you know, we have to be so careful to not reinforce unhealthy behaviors. Um, I mentioned on the blog a situation that happened just a few weeks ago. Uh, My mom was going in for some surgery, 
And the nurse pre-op uh, asked her some preliminary questions. And one of the questions uh, she asked was, you know, have you had weight loss of more than 10 pounds in the last month? And my mother um, responded, yes. And the, the nurse, the nurse at a reputable hospital, said, oh, that's great. <laughs> I was floored by that. <laughs> my mother with a history of cancer is told, is that great? Sure. And I, you know, I, was, I found that appalling. And that's just one of a million examples. We see this pediatricians who have really great intentions and no doubt are biased by the you know, the climbing um, obesity, um, quote-unquote, epidemic, they kind of lose sight of the fact that when they see a child who ought to be growing and gaining weight, lose weight, they don't stop to necessarily ask the questions of why yep. and how. And they don't, they don't do the probing that needs to be done. So... I mean, that's a big pet peeve for me, for sure. No, and, and, I, and I, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that it's, you know, the same thing happened. Um, you know, I watched a family member go through a very similar thing where, you know, she had cancer and right. did lose weight. And, you know, it was someone who had, who had struggled with, with some amount of obesity for a long time. And I was in the room when someone said, oh, you look great. You lost weight. And, you know, that was a really yeah. hard thing to hear because... For you know, decades, of course, she had been doing Weight Watchers and trying to lose weight, but of course now was losing weight because she was dying. Yes, yeah. I mean, the focus really should be put on the behavior and assessing yep. the behaviors, and not on body mass index or, or weight. And similarly, you know, in schools, we shouldn't be. And right now, the current campaign with some really lovely, visually lovely materials directs kids to calculate their calories yeah. and stay within calorie limit and to me that is just the worst possible thing we could be directing children to do or adults but certainly children uh, I, I definitely don't support that yeah you you point out on your on your blog also um the idea of calling food by its nutrient um which is uh, yeah. which is a personal one for me too i hear people all the time say oh well you know what are we going to have for protein yeah, right. I know that one drives me crazy. But, you know, it doesn't drive me quite as crazy as some of the way that people get scammed every day by mm. really great marketing, like the almond milk one. Mm. You know, like yep. nine out of ten people come into my office very proudly telling me they're drinking almond milk. And, you know, besides the fact that there is this um, bit of a... Uh, oh, how should I put it? You know, people feel really pleased with themselves for making some what they perceive to be healthier choices. In yep. the case of almond milk, the irony to me is that there's very little almond in almond milk. Mm -hmm. You know, it's only about a gram of protein per cup, which yep. is significantly lower than cow's milk at eight grams. You know, it doesn't have the fiber of almonds. It doesn't have the minerals of almonds. It's really fortified water. It's too low calorie to be called a milk yep. compared to other milks. Uh, and yet people are expected to drink it and think that they're going to be satisfied the way a cup of milk would be satisfying. So I feel like it's a great example of, of great, great marketing, uh, great, great marketing campaign. And uh, I frequently have to point this one out to patients. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as as someone who operates a store where you know we sell a lot of food products, we're pitched a lot of food products, and you point out, and this is this is a personal one, it drives me crazy on things that say high protein or low fat or gluten free yeah. on things yeah. that you would never expect to have those like 
the gluten-free one drives me nuts because you see things <laughs> like like beef jerky, for instance, often will say gluten-free. <laughs> in what world is there ever gluten Right. In Although, beef. to be I mean, fair, it, to be fair, if in fact, you know, if, you, if you're a patient who has celiac disease, um, not only do you want it to say gluten-free, um, you know, is it helpful to have it flagged as gluten-free, but it needs to be validated that it's been checked. Sure. Right now, the companies are putting the words gluten-free on a product, but they're not doing testing to evaluate how many parts per million of gluten are in the product. Sure. I mean, on the so back of that same I think package. it has a negative consequence for people yeah. who seriously need to be watching their gluten. Oh, of course. I mean, I, you know, I, I, don't want, I don't mean to belittle celiac as an issue. And then, you know, but of course, these same packages on the back say packed in a, packed in a facility that also processes wheat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, so you know, exactly. and, and if it is really an issue for you, then that's a huge you know that can be a huge can be a huge problem. Um, yeah. Well, I wanted to move move away from pet peeves into something a little more, I think, positive or, or fun. I guess. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> um, I know that you have been um, baking a lot of sourdough. Uh, I, I have indeed. What can I tell you about my sourdough? Well, I, I wanted to hear, um, you know, where where your starter came from, um, and you know how how often how often you bake. I have a starter. Um, I have I've had many starters over the years. Some have been gifts. Some I've started, um, you know, naturally. Um, and at the moment, I have probably my longest running sourdough. I, I have a sourdough uh-huh. that, I've, that I've had alive now for. About ten months or so, nine months maybe. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and I try to use it at least once a week, um, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. Um, I grew well, it outside um, on a on a bowl of flour and water on the coast of Maine, um, where I go every summer. Impressive. And wanted to wanted to sort of bring a piece of that, I guess, back home to New York with me, and so I'd have it all the time. Well, I won't poke fun at the uh, start of your question, uh, as in, you know, what was the starter for yes. your sourdough making? <laughs> um, but but punning, puns aside, um, my adventures with sourdough um, began Mother's Day this past year when my younger son, who's in his 20s, gave me some sourdough starter as part of a Mother's Day gift. Uh, his girlfriend worked at a uh, bakery in Providence, which is fab- a fabulous fabulous bakery um, called Seven Stars. And so I got their starter, and basically I've been adventuring, uh, I've been going going through the adventures of sourdough bread baking ever since, and it's been just a total, total obsession. Totally loved it. And have you looked at any, any of the pictures online? Did you get to look I, at I uh, did. I mean, your loaves look fantastic. Yeah, I, they're, they're just like a complete thrill. So basically... Uh, every other week, I make four two-pound loaves. Wow. And let me just remind you, there's only me and my husband <laughs> in my home at this point. Uh, and we managed to go through them with no trouble. Yep. And, uh, evidence that we uh, practice what we preach, which is we eat lots of carbs, yep. and uh, including white carbs, and um, don't seem any worse off for it. But in, but in any case, we uh, so I make these breads, and then I cut them up and freeze them, and I've been, you know, taking some some uh, daring strategies to add in porridges to the bread, seeds, and different different kinds of fermenting, and it's it's been really a fabulous, fabulous experience. That's that's great. I I have been, uh, you know, I 
I wish that I felt like I had the time to dig into actually making loaves of bread with mine. I've done a little bit of bread baking with mine, but I tend to use mine more as an addendum into other things. So I've managed yeah. to, to fit in making, you know, I, I try to... I try to make a you know a sourdough pancake or a sourdough waffle on the weekend mornings. Yeah. My, ch- my children really like that. And then you yeah. know, I've been doing some sourdough flatbreads because those tend to be yeah. pretty quick um, and, so, e- and you easy. You know, I think I think the key is really timing. Yep. Because it's a very long process, but you don't have to actually sit there and and be present for it. So I've gotten into the the routine now, where I'll feed my starter on a Thursday night. Uh, I'm off on Friday. Friday morning, I'll do my first feed. Uh, you know my Bavon, and then Saturday I'm I'm you know putting them in baskets already, um, yep. and, and letting them have another rise. And so it, it's not like I have to sit around all weekend um, doing it. Sure. And then it's just a, it's a very creative outlet. I mean I just I, I love the folds and I I love the scoring. I I'm just completely enthralled with this sourdough thing. And the and then the whole other getting back to the whole virtual world. Yep. I I'm on. I'm on Instagram now, and I find that you know there's a whole world of crazy people like me who can't stop talking about their sourdough bread. And so I get all these communication from this international sourdough fanatics community, and so that's been a, that's been a joy also, I have to say. That's uh, that, that's really wonderful. Well, Laurie, it's been it's been great talking today. I don't know if you have any other sort of remarks or, or things you wanted to bring up, either related to, to sourdough or to um, eating disorders or not. But we're we're just about out of time. Um, any any speaking you're doing or any other um, books you have coming up? Yeah. I'm actually. It's funny you mentioned. I am going to be speaking um, at an eating disorder conference in Massachusetts, the Meta Conference in uh, May. Uh, it's the second week in May. And uh, if people, I'd love people to read the blog. There's all kinds of things that foodies and people dealing with changing their relationship with food would benefit from, uh, including there's a 25% off coupon if you go to the link, uh, if people are interested in getting the book. And uh, I'll have to stop by again and visit you in your store. I really appreciate your having me on the show. Thanks, Lori. And thank you for listening to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tattashore for engineering the show. Please take a moment to like the show on Facebook and iTunes and follow me on Instagram. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.